The Growing Destinations podcast is brought to you by Experience Rochester. Learn more about Minnesota's third largest city, which is home to Mayo Clinic and features wonderful recreational and entertainment opportunities by visiting experiencerochestermn.com. There's nothing more human than history, right? History is what makes us distinctly human. And there's something about a doll that gets to the core of being human because it does not matter, really, it literally does not matter what culture you're from. Every culture has a doll-like toy that children gravitate to. Welcome to the Growing Destinations podcast, where we take a deep dive into destination development and focus on a wide range of topics, from tourism and entertainment to economic development and entrepreneurism, and much more. I'm your host, Bill Von Bank. History is important, including the creepy parts of it. Today I'm joined by Wayne Ganaway, Executive Director of the History Center of Olmsted County in Rochester, Minnesota. In 2019, his organization debuted a new exhibit and contest called Creepy Dolls, which has become an internet sensation. An all-new Creepy Dolls exhibit is back in 2022 with a cult movies theme. Wayne has a background in early American history with a focus on Thomas Jefferson and Mark Twain. While the Creepy Dolls exhibit is an unconventional way to promote history, Wayne firmly believes history is fun and there's learning opportunities from our toys from the past. We're on location at the History Center of Olmsted County. Wayne Ganaway, welcome to the Growing Destinations podcast. Thanks, Bill. Great to have you here. Well, you have a lot of history working in history, so give us the history. I have been a bit of a vagabond in the history business, ping-ponging back and forth between Minnesota and the East Coast. Some of the places I did community outreach, some of the places I did historic restoration of historic houses, other places I wrote grants. So I did a little bit of everything, but the The commonality was always bringing real stories to the public, stories about American history. What attracted you to working in in the history realm? And you've also worked at some iconic institutions. Yes, I have worked at the Mark Twain House and Museum in Hartford, Connecticut. And then most recently, before coming to the History Center of Olmsted County, I worked at Thomas Jefferson's Poplar Forest near Lynchburg, Virginia. And, you know, I think a major influence for me was growing up in Winona, Minnesota, which is actually a very historic town with wonderful historic Main Street. And even the workers' neighborhood had very modest but historic buildings as well. And I just became enamored with the stories and the what generations before left behind. What brought you to Rochester, Minnesota and the History Center of Olmsted County? You know, it's interesting, Bill. I once spoke with a woman who was from South Carolina, but married to a Minnesotan. And they were living in South Carolina. And she said, seems to her, that every Minnesotan has a bungee cord attached to them. (laughs) And that after a certain amount of time... Boing, they go back back to Minnesota. And I think that's what happened to me. And since I'm from Winona, Minnesota, which is on the Mississippi River in southeastern Minnesota, 
the south of Minnesota was the place to be. And I feel really at home here in Rochester. Is there any specific part of history that you really gravitate to or you, you're maybe an expert in? Someone asked me this the other day, and it really tracks with where I have worked. And I have worked in largely early American history. So from the Jefferson period, I would say 1803, probably till the late 19th century or the Gilded Age um, with uh, the Mark Twain House and Museum. And each of those places really has its own distinct flavor of American history. But one thing to remember is they are all connected. They are all connected. The stories of Thomas Jefferson are definitely connected to the stories of Mark Twain. And so coming here to the History Center in Rochester was a challenge because here that you have a little bit of both. You have 19th century agriculture, especially, but also Native Americans. And then you have this relentless innovation and progress, um, especially in Rochester. And these are interesting dynamics to experience and explore. Well, the history of Mayo Clinic itself must be quite intriguing. Oh, yeah. It is a lot, first of all. It is a lot to get your <laughs> arms around because, well, first of all, getting to know Dr. Will and Dr. Charlie, at first they seem very straightforward, but no American icon is so simple. The closer you look with any hero, the more complicated they get. And I think that's true with uh, Dr. Will, Dr. Charlie, uh, and Dr. Chuck, their, uh, Dr. Charlie's son, and Mayo Clinic as well. But the really cool thing about Mayo Clinic is its influence continues, its impact continues. So it's not just history, it's a continuation of history. And also their emphasis on their traditions is also fascinating. In addition to this wonderful history center to explore, you also operate a beautiful historic mansion in Rochester called Mayowood. Share with us more about Mayowood and its significance. Mayowood is the home of Dr. Charlie and his wife, Edith. They were really a team. And they initially, of course, Dr. Charlie lived right next door to his brother, his close brother and um, collaborator in town here in Rochester. And eventually, Dr. Charlie uh, built Mayowood. This would have been in the first decade of the 1900s, so right about 1911, thereabouts. And, you know, it's interesting. One thing with Dr. Charlie was he relaxed by getting out of the city. And he was, he fancied himself as to be a gentleman agriculturalist or a gentleman farmer. And so Mayo Wood worked perfect for him because, first of all, it was a farm. It was a, a number of farms, actually. And then he also had a real interest, a very eclectic interest in design. And you can see that in the architectural details of Mayowood, not just the house, which is a real interesting facade 
of a place built into the side of a hill, but also in the architectural landscape, Bill. The the landscape is is rich itself, and it is a a mix of Minnesota style plantings and uh, water features, but also designs from Japan. So he was very much like to explore and dabble. And I think all of it really speaks to, and I'm hoping I'm not making too light of his approach, but a whimsical nature that I think sums up Dr. Charlie very well, as opposed to Dr. Will, who was a little more sober-minded and just a little more business-oriented. Well, they were also worldly. That's right. Yeah, great point that not only was Maywood this warm hearth for Dr. Charlie to come home to with a loving family and a a really sacrificing wife, uh, Edith. And um, he was just able to relax, but they also welcomed all manner of visitors at Maywood, both very important guests of Mayo Clinic, but also friends, important guests of uh, Dr. Charlie. And that tradition continued with Dr. Chuck, his son, who also uh, was a a physician at Mayo Clinic. And Dr. Chuck and his wife, Alice, also were expert entertainers of really important guests. But they would also have a extra plate set out or, or ready at the dinner table in case any guests just happened to arrive. And it wasn't uncommon. Um, and they didn't have to be really uh, famous either. They could just been a neighborhood friend. So fascinating to learn more about uh, the Mayo family. Yeah. And everything we learn about them helps us understand the roots of Mayo Clinic better. But it's also important to remember also that they were humans, right? They they had their foibles. They were not perfect. None of the icons whose house I have worked at, Mark Twain or Thomas Jefferson, they were all too human. They all had foibles and blind spots. So I think it's always important to keep that in mind with any icons. You know, keeping that theme, share with us your approach in bringing history to the masses when there are complicated stories to tell. This is a challenge because history is so omnipresent. It is everywhere, both explicit historical narratives that you might watch on TV, the History Channel, YouTube videos are a dime a dozen, but also you'll see it in the newspaper, magazines, and then you'll hear it at home and at workplace. But oftentimes those histories that we hear are incomplete. They reflect only one point of view and very often leave out many other points of view. So it's not surprising that most of us have a very incomplete understanding of our history, whether it's local, state, or national. And, but we don't know it because we don't know what we don't know. But it is really important that we do find those and listen to those voices that have not been heard before. For example, for generations, Native Americans have really not been thought of too much in the Rochester area. And any Native Americans that were or may have ever been in the Rochester area in the 1800s 
you know, we've always thought, well, they're long, long gone. Um, it's a, a vanished uh, tribe, but that's not true. There were tribes, Dakota people in the, even as late as the 1850s, late 1850s in Rochester and their descendants are still a thriving community. And those points of view have not been heard before, and they give us a much richer understanding of our history. But also, you know, the more we can wrestle and acknowledge the past, even troubling or challenging parts of our past, the better equipped we are to, as citizens, make better decisions in the future. And I firmly believe that by wrestling with difficult history and acknowledging difficult history, we become better citizens. That's some great insight. Thank you for that. So now we're going to talk about the creepy side of history. In 2019, an exhibit of yours became an internet and media sensation called Creepy Dolls. We are now entering the fourth year of Creepy Dolls. Give us the backstory on this phenomenon. <laughs> yeah, it, it really is a surprising story. So back in 2019, I had just been hired, and we had some terrific board members who were perusing our collections because they wanted to help the public see what we had in our collections and put it on Facebook. And so this board member, she saw the part of our collections that includes our historic dolls. And she thought, oh, these are interesting. And so she took a bunch of pictures of them. And then she looked at them again and said, oh, these are kind of creepy. <laughs> and which is not a technical museum term, but so she said, um, hey, Wayne, what do you think about posting these on Facebook and letting people vote for their favorite creepy doll? And I thought, yeah, sure. Okay, why not? Because <laughs> I firmly believe history is fun. And so we did that, and people just went nuts over it. They not only voted for their favorite creepy doll, but they shared it. It migrated over to Twitter. And George Takai, who is uh, formerly the Mr. Sulu on Star Trek. Star Trek, yes, yeah. I remember. Uh, he even gave us a retweet and uh, <laughs> said, wow, how creepy. Um, so it just, uh, it exploded and we got calls from all sorts of media. Actually, I should say that it started when uh, Minnesota Public Radio, actually, I think they saw it on Facebook and they came and did a story on it. And the the radio journalist who did the story when she came back after all the hullabaloo, she said, yeah, I should have known that this would have been picked up on the wire. <laughs> so, <laughs> and that was Catherine Richard. That was Catherine Richard. Yeah. yeah. So, and she's been a good sport about it as well. Were you prepared for the public's and the media's intrigue over creepy dolls? I was baffled by it uh, because remember, I had just come from Thomas Jefferson's Poplar Forest, you know, <laughs> thinking about American Declaration of Independence and, um, all these heady issues. And, but I, I took a moment, <laughs> took a deep breath and reminded myself history is fun and indeed it is. And so I just rolled with it and we, we were swamped by media inquiries. Here's the thing. People from around the country, not only voted for the dolls, they then mailed us dolls of their own from Chicago, Florida, and 
somehow they didn't get the word that our contest was really just about dolls within our own collection. So that was a lot of fun, though. How many dolls do you have in your collection? It's more than just the nine that you feature, right? So we've already shown, or will after this year, 36 dolls. I think we probably have another 60 or so dolls. So we've, we've, and also we continue to get dolls from Olmstead County, which we do accept. That was going to be my question. The, the, in order to be able to exhibit them, they have to have a connection to Olmstead County. That's correct. You've talked about the the intrigue of the public and the media and, and the social media aspect of it. How do you go about selecting the dolls each year? And then what's the voting process? And just kind of walk through, because this is a month-long activity, right? That's right. Okay. We select the dolls. We like to get a, a variety of sizes, so little dolls, and we do have very little tiny dolls, and larger dolls. We like the dolls to have different materials. So some dolls might be like from the 1950s. So they'll have plastic bodies and their eyes will open and shut. But then other older ones might be, for example, ceramic. Uh, One was a corn husk. (laughs) So, you know, it's good to, it's interesting to explore the different materials. And then it's always good to find dolls with a interesting provenance or a backstory. So, um, one time we had we had a doll that was stored in an attic in a, a farm in Viola. And so that was an interesting story. We then have a come up with a theme. And uh, last year was steampunk. This year it is cult movies. So each doll will get a name that relates to a cult classic movie. And then we will create a poster, like a movie poster for each doll. So for example, Rosemary's Baby. (laughs) (laughs) So we have a poster that's sort of patterned (laughs) off Rosemary's Baby and the doll has a name related to that. And we kind of give them a backstory, a, a fake backstory that relates to the movies. And then for our exhibit this year, because the theme is cult classic movies uh, from the 60s and early 70s, probably 80s too, our exhibit is going to be kind of a mock-up of a movie theater. So we're really excited about that. We're bringing in extra help to help us design it. And then we'll carry that theme over to um, the Creepy Doll Cocktail Party that comes that, that culminates. And that's when we crown the, the winner. So it starts the 1st of October and runs through the end of the month? Correct. Wayne, there must be some fun stories that come out of the Creepy Doll experience. Yeah, actually there are. One in particular is I I always get a chuckle out of it. So in 2020, during COVID, we had had the, the Creepy Doll contest, which was no problem because it was all virtual. But we, we just had to have some culminating event. So we did our first Creepy Doll cocktail party, all virtual. And it was there that we crowned the winning doll. But as we placed the tiara on her head, the back of her head fell off. Oh, <laughs> and uh, we looked inside the, the back of her head. There was nothing there, but we were certain that she had been talking to us just a few minutes before, but I think that is a true blooper in pageant history. So do you get creeped out by the dolls? (laughs) Many, many people tell me volunteer readily that 
they don't like creepy dolls. They say, I am not going to that exhibit. It's kind of like clowns, right? Right, kind of like clowns. I, here's the thing. I find clowns creepy. I don't find dolls, even creepy dolls, creepy. I think it goes back to when I was working at the Mark Twain house or Thomas Jefferson's Poplar Forest or other historic houses. And at the Mark Twain house, actually, we had a, what do you call it? A clairvoyant or uh, someone who feels spirits. And she went through the Mark Twain house and she definitely felt the spirit. And it was in my office that was in the servant's wing. But Bill, I have been in the Mark Twain house at midnight, you know, cleaning. I never felt a thing. So I don't know what it is about me, but I don't, my spirit antenna is not, (laughs) it's not working properly. So, so no, no, I don't, I'm not afraid of the creepy dolls. How do you leverage this somewhat unconventional exhibit to get people interested in history? And that's a, a great point because even the board member who started this whole thing, she was even keen on, you know, making the point that people don't need to send us their creepy dolls. They should really check out the local history center or museum in their own neck of the woods because there are probably dolls in those museums that they can really explore. They should get to know their local museum and support their local museum. So that was the first thing is, yes, thank you for, we're feeling your love and thank you for giving it to us, but give some love to your, your local historical site or museum. Secondly, it's to be sympathetic toward the doll. So yes, the doll looks creepy, but let's look at why. Well, like anything, any uh, carbon-based material on earth, over time, it uh, changes appearance and it ages. And so we can learn about how different materials age over time. So, you know, for example, um, a fiber is more likely to uh, age and, and, be uh, more delicate than, say, a ceramic doll. And then looking at it even more broadly is, and this is a, another part of the point that I, I was going to make, is there's nothing more human than history, right? History is what makes us distinctly human. And there's something about a doll that gets to the core of being human because it does not matter Really, it literally does not matter what culture you're from. Every culture has a doll-like toy that children gravitate to. It, maybe it's even a, a piece of wood carved to be a human figure. That is incredibly powerful because, first of all, it shows that we, no matter what, we have something in common. But it also means we can learn, we can learn about ourselves and our own society by looking at our toys from the past. And that is really the purpose of history. Wayne Ganaway, it's been a great conversation today. Thanks for the history lesson. And uh, even though some of it was a little creepy. (laughs) Hey, anytime, Bill, you want to get creeped out, you just come on over to the history. (laughs) Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. Thank you for tuning in to the Growing Destinations podcast. And don't forget to subscribe. This podcast is brought to you by Experience Rochester. Find out more about Rochester, Minnesota and its growing arts and culture scene, its international culinary flavors, and award-winning craft beer by visiting experiencerochestermn.com.